just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show. My name's Johnny Ball. This is Speaking Influence, the show where we delve into the world of influence and persuasion to help you build authority in your industry and your life and to become a powerfully persuasive communicator. Each week, we take a range of guests from all walks of influence and persuasion, mainly in professional life, and talk to them about what it is that they do to build influence and to be more persuasive. We also like to find out what their secret superpower is and also who are the people who have inspired them with their influence and persuasion. This week, I get to chat with somebody who has a unique history in the personal development world, although maybe not that unique because we shared a lot of things in common. And one of those things that I was thoroughly surprised by and had never encountered before in the personal and professional development world was that he, like myself, used to be cabin crew for an airline. I don't know if you've ever listened to the show before and heard me talk about that, but it's uh, a long time ago in my past now. However, it was also a very significant part of my life and a lot of fun. And for him too, we did talk a very small amount about our airline days and some of the stories from that. And without wanting to go on too much about that, because it wasn't really what we were here for, I think you'll enjoy what we shared about that as well. But for me, it was very exciting to be sharing some time with somebody who has a very similar background to myself in terms of career history and the kinds of work we've been doing and the kinds of people that we've been working with. And he also has a magnificent voice for podcasts, which probably is why he is also a podcast host himself, as well as being a coach, speaker, and a trainer. His name is Daniel Tolson, and I know all you need to do is to relax and enjoy the show. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that helps you to master the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presentations and podcasting coach, Johnny Ball. Welcome to Speaking Influence. Now, today's guest is someone who I couldn't not have on the show because this is somebody who helps people to accelerate and grow their influence and that's what we're all about right we want to help grow our influence and there's a number of ways that we do that there's a lot of things i want to talk to him about his name is daniel tolson welcome to the show daniel johnny good to be here thank you so much it's a, a pleasure and uh, what a change from being at forty thousand feet flying around the world <laughs> well the yeah on, i was i was going to wait around. a bit to, to bring that into the conversation <laughs> but yeah we we have something in common we both used to fly for a living and uh and so i, I hadn't encountered into you anyone else who'd come from aviation particularly from the cabin crew side of it into personal and professional development stuff and so i you know, we, we have that that unique connection i think there's not too many of us 
Not at all. I, I remember flying at 40,000 feet and uh, doing jump seat therapy from Dubai to London Heathrow, from Dubai to Thailand. As soon as everybody <laughs> knew I was a coach, they said, can you hypnotize me? And I said, I, I can try. I think, I think maybe the only jump seat therapy I really did was bringing people alcohol when they were a bit stressed. That was probably it. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, the good times, good times flying. It was a, it was a fun job. Uh, I, I'm not sure it, I'm not sure it's so much fun anymore. I think it's mainly just a job for people these days, but, uh, I, I miss, I miss some of the destinations a bit, you know, there were some good ones. I, I, I had a special skill and I was a tarot card reader. So I'd take my tarot cards onto the flights and, uh, after the service would close the mid galley and would pull the curtains across so the purser couldn't see us in there. And I'd get out my tarot deck and I'd be doing readings for the cabin crew. And occasionally the customers would pop their head in and would pull the linen over the top of the cards and they'd say, what are you doing? And I'm like, you're not going to tell anyone, are you? They said, no. I said, we're doing tarot card readings. And they're like, can I have a reading? So I'd do these tarot readings at 40,000 feet. And sometimes I'd get a uh, call from the captain and the captain would call down to L5 and say, uh, is Daniel there? And I'd talk and say, yeah, it's Daniel. They're like, can you come to the uh, cockpit? I said, uh, what's happening? They said, bring up your tarot cards, do a reading in the cockpit. <laughs> so I'd go up and I'd take the silver service tray and I'd take the linen and I'd walk into the cockpit and I'd do uh, readings for the first officer and for the captain at 40,000 feet. <laughs> wow. Quite, quite a unique thing to be doing, to be doing at altitude. I think the main thing that used to happen in the galley on my flights was me trying to get away from people's uh, conversations, intimate conversations about their sex lives, which uh, cabin crew <laughs> seem to think, cabin crew often seem to think that the curtains are uh, a soundproof. <laughs> and they're definitely not. Some people have been uh, entertained by some very um, enlightening conversations. <laughs> I especially think. those customers in the front row of business class. <laughs> especially. <laughs> Daniel, um, it's, it's great to have to have that sort of commonality in our background and, and flying was certainly a, a lot of fun and flying in a different direction because we are both people who moved into the world of personal and professional development and you've done some very specific things with that which we want to get onto talking about. I want to ask you what, uh, well, who somebody is maybe who inspires you particularly or someone who you look up to for their influence and persuasion and for how they've used it. I've got a cousin and uh, he's always been a role model in my life, super confident, uh, big goals, um, doesn't talk too much about them. He, he, he won't say what he's doing, but he'll just go out and he'll achieve these big wins. And I think one of his businesses at the moment, he's got 500 employees and he'll just go out yeah. and he'll do massive stuff. And I remember when I was young, he said, Daniel, in life, you need to have wit and you need to have charm. And I didn't really understand what wit and charm was, but he was drilling this into me at age six or seven. And so what he'd do is he'd say, what I want you to do is I want you to go and talk to those girls over there on the table and just uh, tell them that uh, I'm your big brother. So we'd go to a restaurant and he'd send me over to a table of uh, 18 and nine-year-old, 18 and 19-year-old girls. He was about the same age. And I'd start talking to the girls. And they'd say, oh, you're really young. You're really handsome. Who are you here with? I'm like, oh, I'm here with my brother over here. And he'd just be waving from the other side. And he said, look, you've got to build your confidence up. And then I remember when I was about 18, he said, hey, you know, the uh, girl down at the local pizza shop, she's really good looking. He said, you should uh, crack onto her. I said, what am I <laughs> going to do that for? He said, just go down to the local pizza shop and get a table for yourself. 
and just get her to come over and serve and talk to you. Now, I, he, he's got a great character about him. And what I learned from that is I need to have wit and charm. And people like people with charisma. And I've yeah. seen him get into places where most people would never go and because he had wit and charm. But one thing that I really like about him is that he's very confident. And I asked him one day, I said, who do you look up to in life? And he said, I look up to myself. <laughs> I looked at him and went, come again. He goes, I look up to myself. And I said, how do you mean? And he said, there's nobody in my field doing what I'm doing. He said, I have nobody to look up to other than myself. And he says, I put myself on a pedestal and then I live up to that image I have of myself. And he's got 500 people working for him. He's got businesses wow. everywhere and he's crushing it. And it's that confidence to do what nobody else is doing in his field. So he's been a big role model for me. Yeah, that's a, a fantastic example of a role model. Are there any other things other than wit and charm that you feel are essential to success for you personally? Resiliency. Resiliency, for me, I learned as an athlete. And as an athlete, my, my same cousin taught me exact same thing. He said when we were learning to water ski, he said, never drop the rope. He said, if you drop the rope when you're water skiing, you lose control. He said, so whatever you do, hold on to the rope to the moment that you hit the water. And so I remember one day I was water skiing. I was probably only about six or seven and I was crossing over the wake behind the boat and I dropped the rope and he just kept driving the boat off into the sunset and he left me in the middle of the river and I paddled wow. to the side of the river and I thought he was going to come back. An hour later, he's still not there. So I had to swim back up the river and across the river to get back to where our house was. And so I learned about resiliency and resiliency for me, I've fallen down many times. I've had learning disabilities, Epstein-Barr virus, chronic fatigue. I used to get tonsillitis six and seven times a year. I had two major knee reconstructions. I had six guys try to cure me. I lost a business in 2007. Uh, when COVID come along, I had to shut down a company. Uh, I had to end one of my international franchises that I owned. But what got me through it all was resiliency. Mm. So you can have wit and charm and no resiliency and you won't get anywhere. But if you've got wit, charm and resiliency, you can go wherever you want. I think that is a pretty magical combination and uh, it's incredible to me, really. I think resiliency is perhaps one of the things we don't see very much of. But also, I, I guess wit and charm is fairly uncommon these days as well. Like people seem to be lacking in all those things. So when you have got them, I think you stand out perhaps even more. Maybe it's always been the case. Maybe it's always been a very small group of people who have this. But it does seem that you stand out from the crowd when you have some charisma and, and, sort of, and certainly when you have some, some resiliency in your life stories as well. I, I think that's, those are fantastic. Wit and charm is very different in a digital age. Before the digital age, we would have to speak to people. We'd have right. to speak to them face to face. And you had to think of things top of the mind, tip of the tongue. But today what happens is people sit beside or beside a computer or a digital device and they use emojis as wit and charm. And people can be very witty on yeah. text. People can be very witty on Twitter with how many characters, 75 characters, whatever it might be, but they don't have it face to face. And I remember uh, dating when I was a, a lot younger and I'd meet these girls and they would text to you. And I was like, wow, this girl's really cool on text until I went out for a date with them on dinner and they sat there the whole time and didn't say a word. And I went, oh, 
totally different. And I don't know how many hundreds of girls I must have dated who were exactly like that. On text, on email, online, on WhatsApp, on Facebook, they were a totally different person. But when I met them face to face, all of that went and I saw the true character. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. as I said at my wedding, I said, you've got to slay a few dragons before you get the princess. <laughs> <laughs> It's a, a different variation. Yeah, I, I've had some experiences like that myself uh, in dating and, and otherwise as well. It's amazing how, how much of a difference personal chemistry when you're with somebody makes in terms of your interactions. I think also there's this uh, maybe safety element of typing stuff from behind the screen that people perhaps allow themselves to be a bit more vulnerable in their communications online when you're not face-to-face -face and then in person perhaps that's where people start to get shy and self-conscious and socially awkward. And one of, one of my biggest challenges in life is, and, and still, still is, I suppose, in some degree, uh, although you might not think it now, is being a bit socially awkward like in, in certain situations. It's just like, oh, I don't know what to say. Oh, I feel really awkward. <laughs> and I get really embarrassed. Uh, and it, it, once you start getting into that and you're thinking, it's very hard to get out of it. And that's certainly uh, probably killed a few date prospects for me in the past before now. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. So, my Sorry? dancing, I can't dance, and my dancing ah. skills didn't work for my wife, but my personality won her over. <laughs> <laughs> so, what I make up for wit and charm, I lose in dancing. It's, it's fascinating, actually. I, I've been recently rereading How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is a book that I revisit fairly regularly. And one of the things I wanted to do on this show was to start bringing in some slightly different content, things like some book reviews, which I love doing. And I thought that's a really good one to start with because that's a book that has had an impact on me and that has 30 principles on it that you can still utilize today. And, and we talk about wit and charm. And it certainly comes into those principles. Like one of the, somebody who I really look up to, not perhaps maybe for their influence, but for certainly for their skill, is a lady called Fran Leibowitz, who's a writer for uh, The New Yorker. And I just think she, she's an incredible raconteur. And we could, I could listen to her talk for hours and hours. Like she did a show on Netflix not that long ago. And, and, and it was mainly just her telling her stories. But and I don't always like agree with her opinions and things like that, but the way she tells stories, it's, she's someone who you can't help but want to listen to and be entertained by. And uh, that, that is something that I definitely aspire to for myself. But I think there's a wit and charm to that that makes people want to be around you, or makes people want to listen to you. And so I think it's something we should all bring a bit more into our lives of of having those those interpersonal skills. Do you think it is something that can be learned or is it something you need to have some element of already? It's a learned skill. It's a learned skill. I remember growing up in my grandfather, he was a great storyteller. And it's not as if he could just tell one good story. He could tell many good stories. But what I realized is that he told the same story over and over and again until he got really good at it. And I looked up to my grandfather and I said, what are these characteristics and qualities I like about him? And it was his ability to tell a good story. So I went and learned how to tell good stories. And then after years of education and practice and telling the same story in many different ways, I finally realized that you can learn how to communicate better. You can learn how to tell a really good story. And it's a learnable skill. Nobody's born a natural born storyteller. I've never met a doctor who's given birth to a baby and hold it up to the air and said, 
this is a natural born storyteller. The doctor says, For sure. this child can be, do and have anything it wants if it's willing to make some sacrifices and to acquire skills. And so I believe that anybody can learn to become an excellent communicator. And, and what you're describing with this lady here, I am not familiar with her name, but everybody loves stories. You know, as soon as you hear the words, once upon a time in a far away land, all of a sudden you go from age 50 all the way back down to sitting on mum and dad's lap and you lean yeah. forward because everybody loves a story. The stories activate the right brain and people are more right brain than left brain. Every decision we make is a right brain activity. And if we can engage people's right minds, then we can lead them to making a good decision. I don't know anybody who's gone to a lecturer and had facts dropped on them for an hour straight. Fact, 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 and come out and go, wow, that was a great lecture. They're like, oh shit, too much information. Yeah. But when you hear these stories and think about Hollywood, some of these productions to make these Hollywood movies, two, three, four hundred million dollars. What are they telling? They're telling a story. And Hollywood has a blueprint of telling a story. And this is why they can pump out billion dollar movies week after week, month after month, year after year, because there's a formula to it. So you can learn it. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my favorite shows that I've ever done on storytelling, and I have a few, uh, it's, not, it's not one of the things that I've uh, had a, a massive focus on on the show, but I think it is an important skill of influence. There's a guy called Matthew Dix who has won multiple moth championships and grand slams in, in the USA, and he's an incredible storyteller. There, there are probably a few more people in that sort of genre that I'm going to get, but he, but he has an amazing book um, that teaches storytelling techniques and, and is so powerful and if you even applied some of that your storytelling abilities are going to go from zero to hero very quickly and uh, yeah def definitely well worth spending a bit of time on doing that how exactly did you end up going from working in airlines to working in personal and professional development well my time as a coach started at around about age 14 so as we were starting to water ski and wakeboard, I had this ability to watch a video. Now, we used to watch VHS videos back then. And I'd watch a video them. and I would break down the tricks that these riders were doing. And I'd go out and I'd say, well, if I do these three or five things, I should be able to land that trick. So I'd watch a video. I'd break it down into three or five steps. I'd go and land the trick the first and second time. And people are like, Danny Dange, like, how do you do that? I'm like, I just watched the video. And they're like, then what? I'm like, break it down the steps. And they're like, when that one? Then what? Go and do it. And they're like, can you teach me? So I started to coach people in water sports at age 14. By the age 16, I was coaching for one of the top water skiers in the country who had a company called The Greatest Show on H2R. And they'd travel all around the world doing these ski shows. And I used to go and coach for them when I was 16. Couldn't even drive yet, but I'm coaching. And so then in 1996, I was interviewed by a magazine called Australian Water Skis News, and it was the most prestigious magazine in the country. And they asked me and my brother what our special skills were. And I didn't know how to answer that question. So my brother said, he's a good coach. So today, uh, 2022, this is my 25th year of coaching. So I'd been doing it for many years. I'd taken that skill of coaching across Australia. I took it to the UK. I took it to America. I took it to the United Arab Emirates. And then in between that, I'd started multiple businesses. 
And then in 2007, I was called over to Dubai to help an Englishman start a business over there. And my job was to coach, to coach the uh, locals how to wakeboard and to coach the expatriates how. And then I lost my business when I was there. I lost my job, my family business. And then I was a uh, lollipop man. Now, lollipop man is somebody who holds a stop slow sign and they direct traffic. So I got to rock bottom. And then I went back to Dubai, got a job with Emirates Airline. Uh, Things were going well. And then my wife was involved in an accident on a flight from London Gatwick back to Dubai. And so she had an accident on board the aircraft. And then for Mm. two and a half years, she was in rehabilitation and surgery. So after the two and a half years, uh, she fell pregnant. Uh, Then just as she was pregnant, they resigned her from her position. So she lost a job, her income. And then I had to make a choice. Do I stay here being a senior flight steward and miss the birth of my daughter? Or do I resign, go to Taiwan and start a business? So I uh, did the crazy thing. I resigned, went to Taiwan, (laughs) tried to start a business, applied for 300 jobs. And then by the end of that year, I was on social security because I couldn't make any money. And I went all the way back to Australia to get on uh, social security. So that's how I started my career as a coach. (laughs) I, I can see why mental resilience is one of your one of your uh, qualities that you focus so so much on. You would need a lot of it for for those kinds of experiences. I'm sure that people looking at who maybe you know a lot of people get into a bit of a, a victim mentality, and there must have been I guess there must have been at least some time for you like oh, why me you know that those kinds of things we can't help them. But you clearly didn't spend very much time in that thing. But I think a lot of people do get this victim mentality about you know, the the world, the universe, whatever is against me. And then you hear stories like that as like, well, you come through it and you, you not only come through it, but you have become successful despite those things happening in your life. Or maybe to some degree you decided to, that because of those things that you would keep pushing through. I mean, maybe, maybe they, they charged you up, but it gives you that thing of why am I playing a victim in my own life when actually maybe the things that I see as being, having been so bad or my rough journey are maybe nothing in comparison to someone else's. Well, I think the reality is I've always been my own worst enemy. There is no law preventing you from having business success. There's no law that prevents you from having relationship success. There's no law that prevents you from having good health, lots of money. We become our own worst enemy. And I have always been my own worst enemy. I've always got in my way. It's me and my bullshit stories that have talked me out of doing the things that I love. Even when I've been down on the ground, rolling around with no cash, I always was my own worst enemy. And and I've known that my whole life, uh, even when I was uh, wakeboarding. My brother was an Australian champion before me. And he used to say to me, Dan, he goes, the only thing between the difference between me and you is you get caught up in your head. You can do all of this if you want to. And he used to say to me, he goes, if somebody turns the camera on, you can go out there and do any trick in the book when the camera's on, but you won't do it when nobody's looking. And so he'd tell me back then, you're your own worst enemy. You're a better writer than all of us, but you'll only do it when the camera's on. You'll only do it when the pressure's on. You'll only do it at the competition. And I could I could go win a competition with no training. But I couldn't do the tricks when I was riding socially. Turn the camera on was a different story. And so I had to learn that through my uh, nine-year journey to become an Australian champion, that I was always my own worst enemy. And even in mm. business, it's always me who gets in my own way. And so the resilience factor 
not so much about the outside world. It's about dealing with the mental and emotional blocks in here. And I think all of us understand this when we start to get into our 40s and 50s. We look around and go, it ain't mum and dad. It ain't my brother. It ain't my sister. It ain't my wife. It ain't my husband. It's me. So yeah, resiliency, uh, battling myself. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we get to those realizations. I think that I do think perhaps some people manage to get through their whole lives without ever having those realizations, unfortunately, but thankfully most of us do. And with coaching, I guess we can have those kinds of realizations even earlier, which would, which would be even better because uh, I do think we are nearly always the things that stand between us and our, our objectives are self-created. They're, they're internal blocks rather than anything in the external world, which is a great thing we, to bring we, up. We get angry at ourselves. We yeah. resent ourselves. We get angry at others. We resent others. And in 2009, I met a life coach and I was flying from Dubai to Manchester and I was pushing the economy uh, class uh, trolley down the back and he stopped me. He said, hey, you got a great aura. And I said, you say I've got a great ass? And he said, no, 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 you got a great aura. I said, I think you heard, I think I heard you said I've got a great ass. And he said, no, you got a great aura. And I said, what's an aura? And he said, it's this, it's this energy and light around you. And I said, you might need another gin and tonic. And he said, no, I don't drink. I said, why not? He goes, I'm a life coach. I said, you're a life what? And he said, I'm a life coach. And I said, well, why don't you come down to the galley for a conversation? So one of the customers on the aircraft from Dubai to Manchester, he was a life coach. And I ended up hiring him after the flight. And I said, I'm going to fly back to Manchester and I'm going to work with you. And you can help me overcome these mental and emotional blockages. And then when he flew from Dubai, from Manchester to Dubai, I'd meet him at the airport and would go have a yeah. coaching session. And it was wow. the best thing for me. So how did I get into coaching? I had to deal with my own mental and emotional blockages first. And then once I had that feeling of being free, I was like, I want this for everybody else. I feel so good. I feel great. How can I get this for others? And so my coach at that time, Christoph Spiceness, he said, go and learn this course, take that course. And I was on my way to becoming a coach. That's quite uncanny because um, the first life coach I ever met was also a flight attendant with the airline I worked with and uh, she was the senior crew member on, on a flight and we were working together back-to-back -to -back flights for a whole week and uh, I think we were the at least the first part of that we were in Philadelphia and I was just chewing her ear off because I'd never heard about this before and she was more than happy to talk about it and she gave me some books to read there was a bookshop near the hotel I went and got them I'd read the books by the end of the week and was already asking her for for more stuff and it's just like oh, okay that's a, an interesting Interesting parallel. Like, yeah, maybe maybe there's a lot more life coaches in in flying than I than I've given credit for. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the perfect place for it, and I I think what makes it the perfect place is when your cabin crew you are forced out of your comfort zone really fast. So for me and Emirates Airline, we had seventeen thousand crew. Every day there was seventeen new crew members on our flight, and we'd never see them again. And you've got just uh, 30 minutes in the briefing room to start to make your connections. Before takeoff, you, you've got your galley sessions and you're having your pre-flight briefing and you've got to make sure you create those bonds. And so I think we learn to adapt, adjust and respond to different people, but we're also very tolerant. And because you're so far out of your comfort zone and you know you're not going to see a lot of these people again, whether it be your customers or your crew, I believe that we do vulnerability very well as cabin crew vulnerability. You open up, you talk, and then uh, you move on and you're never going to see these people. So it's like having a beer yeah. down at the pub with the boys. You can have a beer, you can have a whinge, you can have a moan, and you know you're probably never going to see them again. And I think that's what happens with crew. You open up so fast. Sometimes they open up too many things. 
<laughs> yeah, that's happened a few times as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so people people like to overshare sometimes. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I do think there is uh, also one of the things that I, I feel I've brought with me from that is in that in that role because you are working with different people pretty much every trip you go on uh, you have to connect very quickly because you have to become cohesive as a team and it does it certainly does make a big difference if the person who's leading the team is is good and has a good energy and and inspires good leadership and that doesn't always happen but it's amazing how people can suddenly come together and click very and connect very quickly and you get into the habit of doing that and i think part of that for me is recognizing it was all, almost an assumption like you had to assume that you were going to get on with most of the people there you already had that thing of being in the same job and doing the same kind of thing so that was enough to get some very fast rapport in those situations and, and i think i feel i can connect and and create rapport very quickly with people because of a lot of my experiences with it was british airways that i worked for but yeah there's similar kind of experiences mm. that rapport piece is so important and what i learned from emirates airline is that people are craving good leadership and good leadership is also great communication the the person or the manager set the vision they set the expectation they communicated what they wanted but they also listened to the needs of the crew and yeah. I ended up getting a reputation that people would, uh, they'd, they would go into the swap shop and they'd give away their nice New York flights. They'd give away their Bangkok flights to come and do a 2 a.m. turnaround with me to India, to Bangalore. And I'd ask them, what are you doing yeah. here? They're like, oh, I swapped the flight because I heard you're a good leader. And so I saw people craving good leadership. They also wanted recognition. They didn't want to be a number. And so many flights I'd been on, years before I'd become a leader, you were just a number. Okay, what's your staff number? 394887. Okay, radio, you're at L4. And some of those leaders would even refer to you as L4. Hey, L4, can you do this? <laughs> R4, can you do that? <laughs> Galley operator, do this. And you think, I've got a badge. I've got a name. If you just called me my name, I'd do anything for you. And so I believe people are craving for this leadership. They want to be spoken to politely, but also they want to be listened to. And yeah. if we can listen to people, I believe that's superior communication. I think there's people who can talk, 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 but I don't know so many people who can listen, listen, listen. I think this is one of the, the key skills in, in life and leadership. And uh, yeah, it's certainly something that comes up in the How to Win Friends and Influence People book <laughs> more, more than once. Um, some of your work is also around EQ and uh, behavioral profiles, right? So, so tell us a bit about why you focus on that. I believe today we have to learn to trust in science. And I've come to that conclusion because 95% of people claim to be emotionally intelligent, yet only 10 to 15% are. Where are your memories? Point to them. Where are your beliefs? Point to them. Where are your decisions that you've made? Point to them. All of this is invisible. It's all invisible. So with science, we can make the invisible visible. I remember years ago, six guys tried to kill me and they got very close to killing me. I ended up in hospital with a major operation and my left arm was snapped in half and it looked like a right angle triangle and it was just flopped over. And the doctor said to me, your arm looks broken. And I was like, yeah. No shit. <laughs> he said, we better do an x-ray. And so, albeit he could see the arm was broken, he said, let's do an x-ray for confirmation. 
He took the x-ray. You could see it looked like a right angle triangle. And then he said, is that your arm? I said, well, you just took the x-ray. Of course, it's my arm. And he said, it looks broken. And then we both agreed that it was broken. And then he said, look, there's a couple of things we can do here, Daniel. First thing is we can put a cast on the arm and we can try to let the bones settle back in naturally. Or we could do an operation. He said, if we just let it settle in naturally, after six weeks, we can have a look at how it's set. And if it hasn't set re properly, uh, properly, we can break the arm and set it properly. I was like, I've got to wait six weeks. You're going to break my arm again? I said, what's the other option? He said, we could just uh, do an operation today, put two plates in there, four pins. You'll be back on the water within 90 days. What's best for you? Now, I looked at the x-ray for confirmation and I went, yeah, that's my arm. It's snapped in half. There's no way that thing's going to fix itself. Operate mm-hmm. on me straight away. And so what this means in, in my field is that people are struggling to understand what their mental and emotional blockages are. They've tried everything and they get to this stage where they say, I feel stuck and I don't know what to do next. So they've tried everything that they know. They've read the books, they've been to the podcast, they've been to the trainings, but they're still stuck. So this is when I introduce to them the science of emotional intelligence. And we start to measure their emotional intelligence. And we can do it through a number of ways. We can do assessments looking at the five pillars of emotional intelligence. We can have a look at their behaviors and we can measure that. We can have a look at what drives them and their motivators. We can look at their Hartman profiles and see how they make decisions. We can even use artificial intelligence to measure the brainwave frequencies in their voice, which today measures their emotional intelligence. And once they see their behavioral styles, their patterns in science, because they trust in the science, they look at it and it gives them confirmation. It's not as if it's anything new, Johnny. They go, that's exactly who I am. (laughs) Yeah, my wife would agree to that one for sure. I'm an absolute asshole. That's me. And they start to get confirmation. So it just gives them that new level of awareness. They know this already, but without confirmation and something that to articulate it, they can't agree on it. But once they agree on it, they say, yes, that's me. And then they can learn to improve. So for me, six and a half thousand case studies on the science of emotional intelligence. And people look at this science and they go, Daniel, this is phenomenal. Everything that I thought about myself has just been validated. And then we can get to work. Yeah, it's a, it's a valuable skill. It's, it, I remember reading, I mean, I've read a few books about emotional intelligence, uh, but I remember one particular book that really interested me was about, was about intelligence in general, and that we tend to, as society, put far more weight on IQ than EQ. But even then, those are not the only two kinds of intelligence that there are. We all have different different kinds of intelligence that get very much underrated in in our lives and i think it's imp- it's useful for us really to get an understanding of there everyone has different skills different talents in different areas that may not be related to iq but still are very valuable and very needed and and yet we get really focused on one metric one measure of what your iq is and, and maybe now people are starting to get a little bit more focused on what their eq is and and i say people I, I agree with you that m- probably most people, I would maybe even include myself on this, rate their EQ higher than it probably actually is. And what having do you- done a test on that, I, I that was proven to me after reading the I'm pretty emotionally intelligent, took the test, like, not as much as I thought. Before you think back to our previous careers in aviation, nobody complimented me on my IQ. 
<laughs> I wasn't hired for yeah, IQ. Same here. Yeah. I wasn't hired because I'd passed the test. I was hired for my ability to get along with other people. And, and I remember this when I went to the uh, open day in Sydney. They weren't concerned about your IQ. They didn't care about the certificate that you had or you didn't have. They wanted people who could get along with others. And I remember that when I would be traveling, uh, when I'd be operating in business class and first class. Millionaires, people representing billion-dollar companies, and they'd say, hey, gee, you've got a great personality. Gee, you're a nice person. Thank you so much for your service. Nobody said, hey, you've got a great IQ. People want to be dealt with. And there's a platinum rule, and we say, treat others how they want to be treated. There's a golden rule, and it says, treat others how you want to be treated. But the platinum rule says, treat others the way they want to be treated. And people with emotional intelligence say, I know how I want to be treated, but this person wants to be treated differently. So I'm going to adapt, adjust, and respond. And that's what our our industry was all about. It was about hospitality. It was about making that person feel awesome on that flight from the moment they get on to the moment they get off. And so I believe cabin crew, and not all of them, but a lot of them develop great emotional intelligence skills. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I would agree. You know, there's probably probably similar reasons as to why I got hired. As much as I might have tried to tell myself it was because I'm so pretty, it probably was more to do with sociability and and personability. I I think, in fact, it's interesting that um, one of the key influence and persuasion principles from Cialdini is the likability stuff. And it's a theme that's actually been cropping up on a lot of recent episodes. I tend to find that in life, themes just seem to crop up. But the likability thing has come up again and again recently. And and we talked about uh, EQ and other types of intelligence being underrated. Likability is very underrated as well, mm. I think, as a, as an influence tool. And yet we are, you know, you hear people talking about relationship marketing and that you know, more of a relationship economy now in terms of doing business. That likability factor is probably more important than ever in terms of having that because if you don't if people don't like you they're not going to want to work with you or buy your coaching or buy your products or have book you for a speaking event and i think it's super a super critical factor but so undervalued hmm. so in, in rapport we say that a relationship takes time a relationship takes time because you've got to get to know that person but likingness and responsiveness is based on the autonomic nervous system. So if you're, if, you know, a key principle of rapport is matching and mirroring somebody else. Yeah. If you become like the other person, it's like birds of a feather flock together. Like attracts like. And you can gain that within a matter of seconds. You can have that within three to four seconds. But knowing somebody, that can take a lifetime. Like even I've been married for maybe 11 years, I've been with my wife for 13 years. I will never know her fully. It's going to take me a whole lifetime to know her. But I'll tell you what, the moment I met her, I really liked her. And it was that responsiveness, it was that easy backwards and forwards flow. It was even yeah. being uncomfortable in the silence. I didn't have to say anything and I still felt comfortable there. She didn't have to say anything and I still felt comfortable. And that's a key part of influence and persuasion. And if we can't get that likingness, that responsiveness in the first few moments, then nobody will ever listen to what we've got to say. But again, uh, like the opening question you asked me before, is this a learnable skill? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can learn it and you can refine it. And if you get really good at it, then you're welcomed anywhere. And to just to highlight a point that you made there, Johnny, in business, 
a lot of salespeople don't understand the first sale is you. Doesn't matter if you're uh, promoting Louis Vuitton or Gucci or Chanel. If they don't like you, they ain't going to buy it. You're the first sale. They've got to buy you. And if they buy you and they like you, they'll take anything that you can offer them on the back end. Yeah. And which makes which makes absolute sense. I, I wonder, I mean, don't have too many NLP trainers on the show. Um, I'm not sure quite why that is, because it's, it's something that I'm interested to talk about in terms of influence and persuasion. What are the elements of that? What are the elements of NLP for you that you feel perhaps are most important to learn and most most valuable for people? And you've already mentioned rapport. What, what else is there? Well, I know you've mentioned this on uh, your podcast before. Ethos, Logos, and Pathos. It's very easy to learn to how to communicate. But if you don't have the credibility as an individual, people won't listen to you. So when I'm working with people in NLP, there's, there's no shortcuts to creating credibility. It takes you a lifetime to build up your credibility. And you have to be consistent with who you are on stage and off stage. You've got to be consistent with who you are at the front end of the business and the back end of the business. And if there's any incongruency in there, people will reject your message. So yes, your message has got to be logically logical. We can read any book on marketing today and we can just follow the formula. Yeah. We can emotionalize it and we can bring in the drama aspect and that'll get us so far. But if we don't have the ethics of character, nobody's going to listen to us. So what I say to my NLP students, I say, you've got to develop what's called the uh, when Harry met Sally model of selling. People have to look at you and go, I want what you're having. You look like yeah. you're having a great time. You look like your confidence looks like your self-esteem has gone through the roof. I want a piece of that. And once we get that, the second thing is we're going to be marriage material. And it's like with me and my wife, every single day we're working on the marriage. Every morning I wake up beside her and I want to wake up beside her. She wakes up beside me and she wants to wake up beside me. When we get into business with our clients, we're also getting into a marriage and we want to create an environment that our clients are happy to wake up next to us and do business with us every day. So we have to work on the ethics. We've got to build our unique character and we have to be congruent with that character, both in public and in private. And that's my yeah. key teaching. I'm not interested in sleight of mouth, any of that, because at the end of the day, it doesn't work if you don't have credibility. So just work on your credibility. Yeah, the, those are maybe, I, I used to do martial arts a lot more than I do now, I can say. And I, I always remember that, uh, especially when I did some competitive events, that it was, the, the instructors would always say, it was never the flashy tricks and tools, the, the flashy moves that really won competitions. It was always mastering the basics and, and having the, and practicing those things again and again and again. You master the basics, you can win contests. You can win prizes with the basics. You don't need all the other flashy bits. And, and maybe it's the same really with, with NLP. Maybe it's the same with pretty much anything in life. Master the basics and then you're pretty much free to go where you need to go. You've you got to master the basics. And most people don't want to master that. When I was an athlete, the same thing in the sport of wakeboarding. Everybody wanted to do the flip. Everybody wanted to go upside down. Everybody wanted to do a flip and a spin. And nobody wanted to learn just to jump the wake just to do the basic grabs, just to do a 180. 
But the problem was they would go out and they would do these big tricks and they'd do a front flip with a 180. And when they landed on the water, they couldn't even get back to the natural position. And so they'd fall off. And I used to see these guys come into the sport. And after two or three years, they were doing some of the hardest tricks. But after two or three years, they hit their peak because they had none of the foundations. There were none of the basics. And I remember that with my brother. He got into the sport. He could do all the biggest tricks, but he couldn't do the basics. He found it really hard to ride switch stance. So he could do all the tricks left foot forward. But when it came to doing the same trick right foot forward, he couldn't do it. So he was always limited. Where I'd learned those basics and I mastered riding both ways. And I used to drill it down, drill it down, drill it down. And then for me, over time, I could just build on top of that. So we've got to do the basics. You know, what the old Bruce Lee quote, I'm not afraid of a man of 10,000 kicks. I'm afraid of a man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times. And I'd yeah. love the same thing today. Yeah, I think so too. I, I, I would think it's perhaps for many people, one of the biggest barriers to any kind of success in life is that everyone's just looking for the, the shortcut, the instant method, the magic pill to get to where they want to get to. Whereas the reality is that even if you had that, it's not going to give you anything like the same level of satisfaction or achievement as if you've actually gone through the challenge of what it takes to make that happen yourself. Uh, and I don't think that for most things in life, there aren't magic pills. We can't download information or success from the matrix, like in the films, you know, it's, uh, it just doesn't work that way. So we have to take the long path, but we're better for it. And, and I think really is the only way that uh, as much as we would like there to perhaps be a, a shortcut or uh, there are things we can do to shorten the journey, but we can't really take away the process of who we have to become in order to be, do, have, and create what we want in our lives. One of my friends, Brian Tracy, he said, there's three types of success. He said, the first one is the unsuccessful. <laughs> he said, the second type is the short-term successful. And then the third time, the third type of success is the success that you get and keep forever. And a lot of people are trying to get this five minutes of fame. They think to themselves, if I can just get one clip on the television, if I can just get one clip to go viral on YouTube, it'll solve my problems for eternity. It doesn't. And yeah. sometimes today with these people who become successful and stay successful, success for them takes 20 years. I was reading something of Elon Musk before. Hey, if you want to be successful, work 80 to 100 hours a week consistently and you'll become successful. And so even these billionaires, it doesn't happen by luck. It happens because they keep doing the same thing over and over and again until they get the result they're looking for. And there's no shortcut. Yeah. And as much as we, as much as we might wish it uh, to be different, but this is also a thing of people often don't want to accept that. They don't want to hear the truth of the, the things that the things worth having take hard work. They take commitment. They take perseverance um, because people want things to come easy, but the stuff that comes easy, it, you know, if, if it was easy, it wouldn't be worth having. And so there's this whole paradox that comes with it as well. It's like the stuff that is worth having is not easy and it shouldn't be easy. And you wouldn't appreciate it if it was. It's a, it's a strange world. Like a good body. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to go to the gym once. I'd love to eat a salad once and look like Superman, but it's going to hurt to have those bodies and you've got to make sacrifices. Yeah, absolutely. So. There are, there are some things that you, when we spoke before, you mentioned about some things that will help people to accelerate their in, 
accelerate their influence and that there are four silent fears that people have. Can you tell us a bit more about those? All humans have four fears and we have them to a greater or lesser extent, but it's the same type of fear. The first fear that we face is a fear of being taken advantage of. And I was working with a client the other day and he told me how that showed up in his life. He said, Daniel, I want to ask for help. I would like to ask for help, but I'm afraid that if I ask for help, somebody's going to take advantage of me. And I said, could you give me a couple of examples? And he said, well, in my business, I do everything myself. And I'm afraid that if I delegate it to somebody else, somebody's going to do it better than me. And he said, I can't handle that. I said, what's another example? And he said, another example is I would love to bring in a consultant into my business, but I'm afraid that they might come in and then take advantage of me. They might take advantage of my situation and overcharge me. And I think we've all experienced that before. It's like you want to call a plumber, but you think oh, I'm going to call him out and he's going to charge me 800 quid for the job and I could just go down to the uh, shops and fix it myself. It's yeah. that fear of being taken advantage of. The same thing comes up in relationships as well. I was working with one lady in, in a program that I run called Relationship Recharge. And she said that she was so afraid that somebody was going to take advantage of her. So what she wouldn't do, she wouldn't talk about who she really was. She wouldn't talk about her dreams and her hopes and her desires. Although she wanted a relationship, the fear of being taken advantage of was greater than the desire for the relationship. So that held her back. The second one, and this really comes up in influence and persuasion, it's we fear rejection. We so desperately want to be accepted, but we fear rejection. And people say, oh, well, I don't really fear rejection. Well, there's something under that. It's the fear of being judged. And they talk about judgment in the Bible. Nobody wants to be judged. I know when I go down to the gym and because of COVID, I've been sitting for too long and my belly is not the shape that I want it to be. And I would hate for somebody to judge me on my body shape right now when I'm at the gym doing my best to work it off. So nobody wants to be judged. The third one is a fear of losing stability. And I also see this when people learn uh, persuasion techniques, when they're learning to communicate better. They say, well, I've always done it this way. And what if I start to speak differently? What if I speak louder? What if I speak more eloquently? Who am I? Are people going to accept me? It's so far out of my comfort zone. I don't want to stand up on stage. I want to fly under the radar. So they have this fear. And then what happens is they slowly move out of the comfort zone and then the self-sabotage kicks in and they get pulled straight back into the comfort zone. And it's a fear of losing their stability. It's moving from the known to the unknown. And they essentially fear the future. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't handle that. I'm going to stay put. And the fourth one, which all of us have experienced to a greater or lesser degree, it's a fear of trying and failing. What if I try and fail? What if I make a mistake? What if I'm not prepared enough? What if there's something else to know before I begin? If I can't do it 110%, I ain't going to do it at all. If I can't become a millionaire today, well, I'm not even going to start a business. And so we get this fear of trying and failing. And those four fears we must attend to. So if we've got all the knowledge, if we've got all the skill, shouldn't we be successful? Well, if the fears come in, we won't use all the tools that we've got. And we're held back yeah. by those four silent fears. And, and I've been a victim of all of them. They're not going away. 
And I remember with my speaking career, I used to hide behind the curtain on the aircraft and do my PA because (laughs) I was afraid to make a mistake. And then I went from doing the PA behind the curtain to doing a PA to economy class, to doing a PA to the entire aircraft, and then to do a small stage and a big stage. But if I hop onto a stage today in front of a thousand people doing a live event here in Taiwan, I still fear judgment. I still fear being rejected. It's always there, but I've got to move forward uh, despite of those fears. I've got to keep moving forward. I've got to learn to uh, manage those emotions. And if I do, I yeah. succeed. But if I don't, it's the emotion that gets better than me. And going all the way back to what I said before, I am my own worst enemy. They're my, they're my fears. And I'll either overcome them or they'll overcome me. Do, do you feel like that for yourself, there's a personal mission that you have that helps power you through those kinds of obstacles as well? Well, one, I'm very competitive. I hate to lose but I'm not competing against anybody else. The competition is against me. It's to see how far I can go. It's to see far, see how high I can climb. So I'm very competitive with myself. And so I'm always pushing the boundaries of what I think I can achieve. So I set the bar high and then I learn what I need to learn. I get the skills and then I work on my attitude. So I make sure my inner compass is heading in the right direction. And along the way, I'd say 99% of the times I'm failing and I keep failing, failing, failing until I figure it out and then bang, yes, I get the success. And then another part of my personality is I get bored really easy and I love drama. So what do I do? I set a bigger goal and create more problems in my life and go and solve another problem. (laughs) So the competition is against myself. I look at other people but I always calibrate on the people who are more successful than me. I don't look over to the people who are at a lower level of success. I look at the higher ones and I think, well, what are they doing and what can I learn from them and how can I get closer to what they're doing? So I compare up than down. Now that's a problem because oftentimes I'll look down on myself, but I'm also inspiring, aspiring for greatness. So a couple of little conflicts there, but the competition is against me. Something perhaps that we that we all lose track of, but it, I think it's true that where you focus on is important. Who you spend time with is important as well, right? And uh, so spending time ideally with people who are more successful than you is a good thing to be doing. Not that you have to cut. It's not joining a cult. You don't have to cut everyone else out of your life, but you do need to make sure that those people are there who can help pull you up and give you something to aspire to. And then you, when you can, when we can see how other people are living and showing up in their mm-hmm. lives, we get a better sense of how we need to be showing up in our lives if we want to achieve similar results. Well, for me, I have a belief that a million people woke up this morning feeling stuck and not knowing what to do next. So as part of a coach, what I have to do is I have to go out and achieve the results that my clients want in their life. So what I aspire to be as a leader, so they say, well, if Daniel can do it and he's had learning disabilities, if he didn't go to school, he's had multiple operations and he bounced back from all of that, then I can do it. So I want to teach them resiliency, but I have to live that every single day. My clients come to me because they're stuck in a comfort zone. If I'm stuck in my comfort zone, how can I confidently, how can I tell them honestly, that you can get out of your comfort zone. So I have to keep 
pushing the bar forward and have to keep moving the needle forward for myself. And so when the clients look at me and they say, hey, I want to learn emotional intelligence for somebody who it's working for. And I had one client many years ago, she said to me, she said, Daniel, I want to learn from the result, not the climb. She said, there's a lot of people climbing up the ladder, but you've climbed up the ladder and you've got the result. I want that. So as part of my mission, I have to keep pushing myself out of my comfort zone. And to me, I work with self-made millionaires. I've got clients who are billionaires and they come and hire me for my attitude. They go, I like you. They never ask me about my school certificate or my university degree. They say, I like you. I like your attitude. Can you come and teach my team that? And so that's my duty. And I've got to do that every day. (laughs) That's fantastic. Some people who are tuning in may be wondering about how they could come and work with you or what they could learn from you and may be, especially after what has been a very enjoyable conversation, maybe thinking it would just be great to connect with you. What is the best way for them to do that? I have a masterclass every Monday night here in Taiwan. It's about 8 p.m. here in Taiwan. It's probably around about 9 or 10 a.m. in the morning in the UK. And it's called Unleashed Masterclass. And I'm really teaching three things. How to overcome your fears, your doubts, and your limiting beliefs. And I believe that if we can overcome these, then we can start to accelerate our impact. And I've found that out in my life from doing sports, the difference between me and my brother, he became an Australian champion six years before I did, he overcome his fears. I hadn't. I had doubts about my ability. He didn't. I had limiting beliefs and I had all these reasons why I couldn't succeed. And he had none of them. And he went out and became an Australian champion athlete. And it took me nine years. And so what I've learned on my journey, if we can overcome those fears, doubts, and limiting beliefs, then we can unleash our full potential. So it's unleashedmasterclass.com. Dot com and it's every Monday. Great. Well, that's great. Uh, there'll be a link for that in the show notes for anyone who wants to go and check that out. I highly recommend it. Daniel, I wonder for you, what are the books that if anyone comes and says to you, uh, Daniel, can you recommend me a good book? What should I read? What's going to help my life? What, what What's made an impact on you? What, what are the books you would recommend? I was given a book in 1999 by my mentor and uh, it was called Maximum Achievement. And it was written by Brian Tracy. And in the inside cover, my mentor, who was my Uncle Johnny, said, uh, to Danny Boy, this is your blueprint of success. And I read that book and I applied what was in it. And my life quickly took off. I became a three-time state champion athlete. I competed in extreme games. I was an Australian champion athlete. I bought my first two investment properties before age 20. I'd traveled the world by age 22. And this book became my personal Bible, and I seek to apply everything that I learned in there. Now, the most fascinating part, Johnny, was that the author was Brian Tracy. And then in 2016, I ended up having a business with Brian Tracy, and I'd travel around the world uh, facilitating his programs. (laughs) So I read the book and applied it and then ended up doing business together with him. Great book, Maximum Achievement. Uh, Yeah, fantastic. Brian is probably one of the first people who I ever bought a, a course from, a personal development course and, and program, which I, which I still have. And it was very valuable and certainly, certainly somebody who's very well respected and looked up to in the industry too. Great recommendations. For you personally, what is your influence and persuasion superpower? I realize it might be more than one thing to choose from, but what would you call your superpower? My superpower 
would be creating what's called an unconditional positive regard. And this is a state in psychology where the person that you're speaking with feels no sense of judgment whatsoever. So my job is to create this unconditional positive regard. And it's a safe space. And as my clients communicate within this safe space, they end up having the Freudian slip and they feel so comfortable talking to me because there's no judgment that they let the cat out of the bag. They start to tell me the things that they don't tell their husbands, their wives, their mums and dads. And then they look at me and they say, I can't believe I just told you that. And I say, thank you so much. Please keep going. And all of a sudden (laughs) they let out all of those obstacles. And it's called an unconditional positive regard. It comes by matching and mirroring. It comes through changing and modulating your tone, your pace, your tempo. It comes to do with the way that you nod your head when people are talking. It's to do with where you position your eyes when they're talking. And I think the most important thing is a lot of people make a lot of direct eye contact. But one key takeaway, ladies and gentlemen, the eyes aren't talking. The mouth is talking. So remember to look at people's mouth when they speak, and that'll really help you with your communication. Definitely will. Yeah, Daniel, sometimes it's just so sad when a conversation comes to an end because you want it to continue. This is one, one of those occasions. If there is just one thing that you hope people will take away above everything else, you, hopefully they will get from this chat, what do you hope that would be? That all world champions have a coach. All world champions. If you've watched the Olympics, every Olympic athlete has a coach. If you watch the Premier League football, everybody has a coach. And if you want to perform at your best, then go and get a coach. Go to a training, get a personal coach, join a group coaching program and learn from somebody who's got the result. And what can happen is you can get 10 years of information inside of one seminar. It can shave 10 years off your life. I was on social security. I had absolutely no money. I went and got some great mentors and then my life took off in a totally different direction. And going to a seminar, getting a coach, is it just accelerates that impact so fast. You can get decades of knowledge in days and it'll transform your life. Get a coach, join a program, get a mentor. It'll change your life. Great advice. Daniel Tolson, thank you so much for coming and joining me on the show. It's been a wonderful chat and thank you for being my guest today. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you happen to have your device in your hand right now and you're on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you press the plus sign on the show screen to make sure you are following us for future episodes and you can follow us on Spotify or other channels. And it would also make my day if you left a rating, a five-star rating for the show and tell us what you love about Speaking Influence and maybe even what you'd like to see in the future. Getting feedback as a show host is a real treat. And it also helps to show others what people are enjoying about the show. Next week, I'm bringing you a fantastic guest, an amazing chat I got to have this week with none other than Mr. Youpreneur himself, Chris Ducker. So if you don't know who Chris is, you should definitely check him out. He has the Youpreneur podcast, which is an amazing podcast that I listen to a lot. And he has his book, The Rise of the Youpreneur, and a whole ecosystem built around his Youpreneur products He's one of my mentors. He is a great guy to speak to. And I got a lot of value myself from the conversation I got to have with him. And I'm looking forward to getting to share that with you too. So make sure you tune in next time for my chat with Chris. And do keep an eye out for some other changes and things coming up with the show very soon. Wherever you're going, wherever you're doing, have an amazing rest of your week. I look forward to connecting with you again on another episode of Speaking Influence.